Father, we thank you that we can address you as such. We thank you, Lord, for being the Father from whom every fatherhood on earth is named and the one to whom all fathers are merely pointers. And I pray, Lord, this morning as we dig into your word together that you would help us to understand it so that we might love you more, see you more clearly as the Father that we need and that we might leave here walking more closely with you as our Father and that the fathers in this room might leave here better equipped to represent and reflect you more accurately to their children. So would you do this, O Lord, by the power of your spirit and for the glory of your name. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can have a seat. Back when I was a teenager, we were at youth group one night, and the band finished up with a rousing rendition of Romans sixteen nineteen, which is a rough translation of Romans chapter 16, verse 19, set to music, and it's a lot of fun to play if you're in youth group. And our youth pastor was in a bit of a, a goofy mood, and he had the crazy idea that he was going to take his Bible and flip it open at random and point to verses and sing them to the tune of Romans sixteen nineteen. And we had a few misfires. <laughs> but I remember we all started belly laughing when he pointed at random to Proverbs 21, 9. I still remember his voice belting out, Better to live on the corner of a roof than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. We did what you're doing right now. We laughed. We thought it was silly. But that moment also locked in for me the way that I and perhaps many other Christians looked at the book of Proverbs. I saw it as a puzzling collection of random sayings that were just as curious as they were edifying. For years, Proverbs 1 to 9, Proverbs chapter 1 to 9 made sense to me. I mean, there it's straightforward. you got some poems, but it kind of flows and it makes sense, right? But then when you get to chapter 10 in Proverbs and, and onwards, you just find these little statements, one after the other, that don't seem to be incredibly connected to each other. So if you look at Proverbs chapter 10, if you have your Bible, let's look at the first four verses to get a sense of what I'm talking about. Proverbs 10 says, the Proverbs of Solomon. So each of these verses is a proverb, and that's why the book is called Proverbs. The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. How do you make sense of that? Well, today we're picking up our summer series in Proverbs, 
Uh, and, and last week we started it by looking at Proverbs chapter 9, which we studied together over the, the weekend at family camp, which was really, really cool experience. And today we're getting into chapter 10 to the rest of the book. And so what we're going to do here this morning is I'm going to start by saying a few words about the Proverbs in general and how we should understand the Proverbs. And then then we're going to just briefly touch on how this sermon series is going to work. And then, then finally we're going to look at a collection of Proverbs around the theme of fatherhood. So let's start by talking about how the Proverbs work. If you look again at the beginning of verse or chapter 10 and those four statements that we just read, those four Proverbs, they all follow a fairly similar pattern that we see carry on through much of the book of Proverbs. Not, not always, but this is a very consistent pattern. You've got a statement, and then you've got the word but, and then you have the second half of the statement. This, but this. So, for example, verse 2 and 3, Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. So each of these proverbs, each of these, specifically these two that we just read, they paint a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And many other proverbs paint a contrast between the foolish, the wise, the shameful and the prudent, the lazy and the hardworking, and, and so on. So one of the things that we see right away is that the Proverbs help us see the world in a certain way, namely a black and white kind of a way. The Proverbs help us see the world in, in black and white. That might be very uncomfortable to some of us today because how often are we told the world's not black and white? Well, have you ever noticed that that is a black and white statement? And uh, we can't help but see black and white. And the Proverbs give us a picture that is black and white, of, of, two, of two options, two opposing paths. And then, and then connected to that is the fact that the Proverbs are, are calling us to respond by, by presenting us with a choice. Are you going to be the wicked or the righteous? Are you going to be the lazy or the hardworking? Are you going to be the foolish or the wise? So the Proverbs aren't just commenting on life. They're inviting us to respond. They're inviting us to live wisely by choosing which path we're going to take. Another thing we notice is that the Proverbs, most of them are quite short. Now we get later on in the book, you get to like Proverbs 31, you got a whole chapter about one topic. But much of the time, the Proverbs are very short. Even in Hebrew, especially in the Hebrew language, it's even more apparent. The Proverbs use as little words as possible. They're just really tight, really pithy. And that's one of their distinctive features. It's not a, it's not a bug, it's a feature. That's, that, that's what's distinctive about them. One commentator said that it, it's like the Proverbs are slideshows. And some of you are old enough to remember those, those slide machines and how every time you, you go through, it makes a click, click, click. And it just gives you a snapshot it's not like a movie where you see mo- movement and you see things from different angles and it's flowy. Other parts of the Bible are more like that. It takes you on a journey and you see the whole movie. The Proverbs is more like a slideshow. Click, click, click. And that's on purpose. What the Proverbs are not designed to do is give us a fully orbed understanding of everything there is to know about a particular topic. In other words, a single proverb. Single proverb is not designed to say everything that there is to say. Rather, 
The Proverbs give us a snapshot in black and white of a particular topic from a particular angle. And then what we need to do is take all the Proverbs together and then with the rest of Scripture to get a fully orb picture of what that topic looks like. So, for example, let's look at verse 3 here in chapter 10. It says, the second half says that God thwarts the craving of the wicked. Seems straightforward, right? If you're wicked and you crave something, God's going to thwart that craving. You're not going to get it. Is that the whole truth, though? And here's how, here's, here's how we know that there's more going on here than, than just this little snapshot. Because verse 2 opened up by saying, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. Well, wait a second. I thought that God thwarted the cravings of the wicked. So if God thwarts the cravings of the wicked, then how come the wicked have just gained treasure in verse 2? So do you see how we, we have to take the Proverbs together to get a fully orb picture? Sometimes the wicked do get what they crave, treasure. However, what we see is that when the wicked gain treasure, it's not going to work out well for them. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. It doesn't work out well for them long term. In the long term, they don't get what they want. And so in the long term, God thwarts the cravings of the wicked. Long term, they're not going to get all that they want. Short term, they might, but not long term. Now that's a perspective that you can't get from a single proverb. You need to take more than one and take them together to get a fully orb picture. And so that's one example of how we need to approach the Proverbs. They're a snapshot in black and white of a particular truth from a particular angle, and we have to take them together. So in other words, we should be cautious of taking one single proverb and making it, uh, treating it like a promise. Okay, Proverbs are not promises. They're things that are generally true that we need to take together to really understand what's going on. So here's an example. Many parents have taken Proverbs 22.6 as a promise. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Sounds straightforward, right? Train your kids well when they're young, and when they're old, they're going to stay the course. That's what it seems to say. And if you take that as a promise and stake your life on that, that can sound really good. But if it were that simple, if that's all there was to say, then why was the book of Proverbs even written? Especially the first nine chapters. Think about it. Who were the first nine chapters written by and to? They're written by a father to his son on the verge of adulthood, if not already in adulthood. I mean, he's old enough for full uh, relatively detailed discussions about marital intimacy. So at least he's on the verge of adulthood. And what's the father doing in the first nine chapters of Proverbs? But he's pleading with his son to stay the course, to not wander away from the teaching that he received when he was a child. He's warned about the dangers lurking for him out in the wild world. And he's threatened with what might happen to him if he strays. Did you see that? Solomon didn't think, I trained him up in the way he should go. He's set. I don't have to say anything more to him. My work is done. My work was finished when he was a little kid. He's going to continue in the path, right? No, he understood that his son had the ability 
to reject what he had been taught. And that's why he begs him not to do that. So do you see that just even based on what we see in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 22 verse 6 is not an airtight promise that describes all aspects of parenting. Rather, it's a proverb, it's a black and white snapshot of something that's generally true, which is this. Parents, how you raise your kids matters. It really matters. And very often, God uses godly parenting to set the kids on a trajectory that's going to stay, and they're going to stick to that course for the rest of their life. But the rest of the book of Proverbs acknowledges that there's nuance to that, that they might reject what they've been taught, and they may wander off from the path. And so we have to take all of the Proverbs together to get a, a fully rounded, nuanced understanding of what they're saying. So that's how the Proverbs work. They're screenshots, not the whole movie. We have to take them all together and they invite us not just to reflect, but to respond and to act. So the next question is, how do you preach on the book of Proverbs? In my notes here, this heading is, will it preach? Uh, It would be very hard to preach verse by verse through the Proverbs in the order which they occur. So you got one topic, and then another topic, and then another topic, and then another topic, and then another topic. And it would be like watching your grandparents' slideshow of something that happened back in the 60s and just click, 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 click. So here's the plan. We got this. We adopted this from some other preachers and some other commentaries that have used this approach. And for the last few weeks, Tim has been going through the book of Proverbs, and he has grouped them. This is a lot of work. And he's grouped them all together by topic. We've identified 14 separate, now they're, they're related to each other, but 14 separate topics or themes in the book of Proverbs. And each Sunday, we're going to preach on all of the Proverbs connected to that one theme. And that's what these are going to be for. So that each Sunday, you can grab one of these on your way in. Some weeks, they're going to be double-sided. Some weeks, there might be two sheets. And we won't maybe touch on every single one in the sermon, but that's why you can take them home and read them. And, and we're going to then, over the course of these months together, and the, sermon's going to, the sermon series is going to run into September. And in the course of these months, we're going to preach on the whole book of Proverbs, but grouped together by theme. So today, I got to pick. Now, often I don't get to pick what I preach on. It's just whatever's next in the book that we're preaching on. Today, I got to pick, and I picked parenting and fatherhood. One reason is that we've already spent time in Proverbs 22, verse 6, which we're going to come back to. And second reason is it's Father's Day. Now, we don't often uh, do sermons on things like Father's Day and Mother's Day. Those things aren't in the church calendar, let alone the Bible, but it's fitting today Uh, to do this, I think. And so then for the next few weeks, while I'm on vacation, even after I'm back, we're going to hear from Josh and Jordan and Brad and Tim and Jason, who are going to take up other themes like money and friends and neighbors and true justice. And we're going to look at all the different proverbs which speak to those different topics. So now we've introduced how to work with the proverbs, how to understand them. We've introduced what we're going to do in this series And so now we're going to look at this group of Proverbs that has to do with parenting and fatherhood. And you might ask, why am I saying parenting and fatherhood instead of parenting and motherhood? And the answer is that while some of the Proverbs definitely speak to both fathers and mothers, the Proverbs repeatedly assume 
that the parent who has primary responsibility for the children is the father. Isn't that interesting? In our world today, we tend to assume the opposite. We assume that the mom is the main parent and the dad is just a tag along who is vaguely aware that some short people live in the same house as him. And we laugh, but it's not really a joke, is it? Fatherlessness is a major problem in the world today. Some authors have suggested it's at the root of many, perhaps most, problems in the modern world today. Whether it's dads who actually abandon their families, or dads who stick around but they're not engaged, dads who spend all their time at work or on their hobbies or their phones and never develop a real relationship with their kids, dads who never lead, dads who are passive pushovers. Sometimes, I don't know how prevalent this is, but I know I've heard from some stories, dads who can't have access to their kids because the the justice system is so oriented towards maternal rights. Much of our modern world is plagued with father hunger. But in scripture, dads are addressed as the parent with primary responsibility for their children. So, we can see this in the Proverbs, but just a New Testament example, if you want this in one verse, Ephesians 6.4, which says, it's going through the household, right? We've got husbands, we've got wives, we're going through the household. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And then Ephesians 6.4 talks to the kids, and what's it, or sorry, talks to the, the, well, what's it say? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Whose job is it to bring up children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? It's dads. You want a, a New Testament theology of children's ministry? This is where it starts. Who's responsible for children's ministry in the New Covenant community? Primarily, dads at home, bringing up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, this is not saying that moms aren't going to be the ones that in a day, spend the most time with the kids. Throughout most of human culture, mothers have been the primary nurturers. And this is not erasing or that at all. I mean, Ephesians 6.4 is not advocating for stay-at-home dads, and, and I certainly am not. But what we do see here is that the father has primary responsibility for the kids. The buck stops with the father. He's the one who gave them life. That's a perspective we're going to see later on in Proverbs. He's responsible for the children because he's the one who begat them. He gave them life. He brought them into the world. And he's responsible for them. And like we touched on in our series in Genesis last spring, what a mom does in raising her children, she does, or at least should do in a healthy family, she does in her role as her husband's helper. Did you get that? I wrote a blog post about this. You can go back and look at it. But what a mom does in raising her children, she does in her role as her husband's helper because he is the one given primary responsibility for the children 
according to God's word. And we see that in these Proverbs, those three that we read together earlier. We can see that the primary parent addressed is the father. His children will have a refuge, Proverbs 14, 26. The glory of children is their father's, Proverbs 17, 6. Blessed are his children after him, Proverbs 27. And I'm not ignoring moms here. Moms, you, you come up in Proverbs a lot. You got a whole chapter devoted to that, and it's gonna, you're going to see that it's there. But we're, what this is talking about is the fact that the primary responsibility, the person that God is going to hold accountable for the children, first and foremost, is the dad. And we see that all over Proverbs. Now, that's kind of our first point here. Fatherhood is primary. The next three points that we're going to look at have to do with the blessing that godly fathers provide to their children. And looking at these three Proverbs that we've read already, we see that fathers can be a blessing to their children by being a source of joy and security for them. So the blessing of fatherhood in joy and security. So Proverbs 14.26 says, In the fear of the Lord one has strong confidence and... His children will have a refuge. You've heard this phrase, I'm sure, before. I'm not sure who all has quoted it or said it, but when you fear God, you need not fear anything else. When you tremble before God, you don't need to tremble before anything else. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 10. We're going to look at that later on this fall. Don't fear man, fear God. Tremble before a God who can destroy body and soul in hell, and you won't tremble before men who can simply destroy your body. So the one who fears God walks in confidence. Nothing can shake him. And who is that a blessing to? His children. And his children will have a refuge. When a man walks in the confidence that comes from fearing God, his children are blessed and safe. Few things are more sad to me than insecure dads who try to use their children as a way to prove that they're something or try to even prove to their children that they're something. But few things are more wonderful to me than a man who is confident because he knows his God and walks in the fear of the Lord. And I'll tell you that the kids of that man are going to be safe. That man's going to create an environment of safety in which his children find a refuge. He creates a safe harbor for them to flourish. Proverbs 17, 6 speaks about the way that a godly man is a glory to his children. Now, it starts off by saying grandchildren are the crown of the aged. Okay, those of you here with grandkids, you don't need me to explain this one to you. If I could give you a choice between a gold crown studded with diamonds or your grandkids sitting on your lap, I know which one you'd pick every time. Okay, so we get that. We've seen the pictures on Facebook. You know, I'm not picking on anyone in particular, just grandparenthood. It's, it, it, I can't wait to be in that spot if God lets me be in that spot. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged. And, notice it's not but, it says and, the glory of children is their father. This is the way that it's supposed to be, is that a godly dad is a glory to his children. That his children, in other, it's like the same idea of the crown is here, that a godly dad is like a glorious crown on the head of his children. That children be like, that's my dad. And they love that. Now, you might be thinking, my kids are in high school. You know, good luck. But think long-term, right? Snapshot, long-term truth. 
And a dad is a glory to his kids, not because he's trying to be cool and compete with all their high school friends, but because their dad is a man of rock-solid character who walks in the confidence that comes from the fear of the Lord. He cares for them. He protects them. He provides for them. He leads them. He knows them. And he's their dad. And he's going to get in between them and anything that's going to cause them harm. And they feel safe. And they love that. A father, a godly dad, is his children's glory. Finally, for this first point, or I guess the second point here, Proverbs 27 says, The righteous who, walk it, who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Again, there's some big old covenant points here. A godly man in the old covenant would leave his children with material blessing and an inheritance in the land. Just like, you know, the glory of uh, the grandchildren are the crown of the aged. You know, in the old covenant, having grandchildren meant you're, you're sharing in the blessing of Abraham. This is a big deal. So here, in the old covenant, yeah, a godly man who walked in integrity would leave blessing for his children. But this points to more than that. And in the new covenant, I think we understand this, that those of you who have godly dads know how many ways in which you have been blessed through your father simply being a godly man. Walking in integrity, a safe refuge for his children. And those of you who are fathers today, you have a chance to be this way to your children. So that's the blessing of fatherhood and joy and security and glory. Now the next point we're going to see is the blessing of fatherhood in discipline. There are many proverbs about discipline. In fact, we're going to spend a whole morning talking about the blessing of discipline and rebuke. But this morning, let's look at several Proverbs that speak about the absolute importance of a father disciplining his children. And they're there in that second section on your page. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Discipline your son, Proverbs nineteen eighteen. Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. 22.15, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. I just realized these aren't all in order, so forgive me for that. The rod of discipline drives it far from him. Proverbs 23.13-14, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Proverbs 29.15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. These verses extol the value of discipline. Primarily in these verses, the importance of physical discipline. And some of you might be thinking, You lost me. That stuff about blessing and glory a few minutes ago, I really like that, but I'm not sure how I feel about all this discipline business. And from the perspective of the book of Proverbs, though, disciplining your children is one of the primary ways, dads, that you will become a blessing to them. That's how it works. Notice how 1324 says, those who do not discipline their children hate them. Loving parents, loving fathers are diligent to discipline their children. 
1918 says that those who don't discipline their children have their heart set on putting them to death. In other words, by allowing their children to do whatever they want to do, they are preparing their children for death. And that's why Proverbs 23, verse 14 says, If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol, from the grave. I remember reading an article a number of years ago, and it was one of those tragic shootings by police of a young boy who had a toy gun in his hand. And the police didn't know that it was a toy. And they told him to put it down, and he didn't. And he pointed it at them, and they thought it was real, and they shot him, and he died. And the article reflected on the fact that parents who do not teach their children to obey the first time are training their children to be shot by police. Now that's, of course, speaking with hyperbole, but hear what he's saying. Train your children so that when an authority figure tells them to do something that's a good command, that they obey. If not, You're training them for a whole world of pain. And the shooting by police thing may be an extreme situation and 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 that you may think that's out of place. But just consider what happens to people in this world who go through life doing whatever they want to do. And the pain that they bring not just to themselves, but to the people around them. And that's why this says, Don't hate your kids, discipline them. And why is this? Why is discipline so important? Well, 22 verse 15 explains it this way. It says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Children are born cute. They're not born wise. Children have hearts full of folly. Children are naturally disobedient and rebellious. Children don't need any help thinking of themselves first before others. Children don't need any help being foolish. And if parents just let kids go the way that they're going to go, they're going to walk into a life full of behaviors that are going to harm themselves and harm others. And the perspective of Proverbs is that, especially when a child is young, it takes more than words to get that foolishness out of their heart. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, and what will drive it far from him? Physical discipline. Bruce Waltke, in his masterful commentary on Proverbs, wrote this. He said, The English proverb, spare the rod and spoil the child, is biblical and has stood the test of history. The biblical method of rearing is loving the child, which entails strict discipline, and valuing him or her as a gift from God. The New Testament teaching does not abrogate or supersede it, and, and I think he meant to put the word it in here, it should not be abandoned in the church as unfashionable or explained away as culturally conditioned. Here's what he's saying. Spanking was not just a cultural thing, and the New Testament doesn't erase it. And then he quotes someone else, a hard way to wisdom is better than a soft way to death. The failure of the apostate Western world to continue the biblical practice, the biblical practice of physical discipline, has left its civilization in moral chaos. Bruce Waltke, a top biblical scholar, says, why, why the moral chaos around us? Maybe parents not disciplining their kids has something to do with it. 
There are parents who think that they can just talk to their kids instead of using physical discipline. And the perspective of Proverbs is that that idea is folly. There are parents who stand by and plead with their children as if their children were the ones in authority. And the perspective of Proverbs is that that is folly. The question these Proverbs ask in strong language is, essentially, how much do you need to hate your child before you step in and discipline them physically? Now, I want to make two important comments here. First, these Proverbs are not telling us exactly how we must discipline. And what I'm pointing to here is the language of rod. When these verses talk about the rod of discipline, the focus is on the discipline, not on the rod. Okay? Now, it's true. In the ancient world, the primary way of physical discipline was a rod on the back. Some of you are old enough to remember the meter stick in school, and you're thinking, well, it didn't kill me. Uh, w- uh, wooden spoon, anybody? Anybody have a wooden spoon in their past? You know, I turned out okay. Now, here in Canada today, it's actually illegal to use, for a parent to use anything other than their hand. And that's, that's fine, because I don't think this is telling us exactly whether we need to use an implement or not but rather the fact that physical discipline is happening when it needs to happen. Second, we should recognize that there's a huge difference between corrective physical discipline and hitting your kid because you're angry at them. Hitting your kid because you're angry at them is abuse, even if you're not hitting them hard. It's abuse because you're abusing your relationship with them. You're using your position of authority and using their body as an object upon which you're venting your anger. And it's not okay. It's not okay at all. Godly physical discipline is controlled. It's well thought out. It's deliberate. A godly parent knows how to give themselves time to calm down if they're angry so that they're not acting out of rage. A godly parent knows to only use physical discipline when it's appropriate and when it's fitting to the situation. But godly parents who do this and who do this well will know the blessing that this proper use of discipline will bring into their children's lives and also to their lives. Proverbs 29.7, discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Do you want an awesome relationship with your kids? Discipline them when they're young. Now, there's one more important stop for us here this morning, and it's considering the blessing of fatherhood in positive instruction. Here's, Here's what we're going after here. Being a godly parent, being a godly father, is not simply a matter of disciplining your children when they disobey. It is just as much a matter, if not more a matter, of positively, proactively training them to live a wise and a godly life throughout all of their life. So if you only discipline them when they do bad stuff, that's half the job. Rather, being a godly father and a godly parent involves Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Training involves correction, but includes so much more than this. It involves proactively, positively, and by positively, I mean it's, it's not just waiting for them to do something wrong. It's proactively teaching them 
wise and godly living any chance you have. And why do we know this is true? Not just from Proverbs 22, 6, but from Proverbs chapter 1 to 9. Look at what the Father is doing. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments, he says in chapter 3, verse 1. Right? This is the Father teaching his son how to live well and how to live wisely. And we see this not just in the Proverbs, not just in Proverbs 1 to 9, which dads, go read it. And model your fathering after that. But look at the rest of scripture, Deuteronomy 6, 6 to 7. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And what are you going to do with them? You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, your family life is full of the Bible and God's word. And it's shaping every part. And dads, the primary job falls to you. Or think again of Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Dads, do you teach your kids? Are you teaching them how to live wisely? So many dads are so narrowly focused on helping their kids learn to be good at sports or how to make money. And while those things might not be bad, dad, dads, your job is to give instruction to your children on how to live wisely and godly in all of life. Bruce Waltke, again, talking on, on, commentating on Proverbs 13.24, says that this proverb assumes, quote, the home is the basic social unit for transmitting values. Dads, this is where God designed your kids to learn how to value things, how to live life well. Not Sunday school, not church, not public school, certainly not these days, but at home, learning from you. And we praise God for the many godly mothers who invest so many hours each day in raising and training up godly children. And this isn't putting that as as a a sideline whatsoever. But dads, do you know that the buck stops with you? The responsibility belongs to you. God is going to hold you accountable not your wife, at least not first. Dads, do you know how important this is? Do you hear Proverbs 23, 26? My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Dads, can you say that to your kids? Have you? Are you drawing out their hearts to watch you and to learn from you? You can tell that we're moving into application mode here. It just sort of happened. And as we do that, dads, I just want to encourage you, own this responsibility that God's given you. Own it. Don't just look at it. Own it. You can't blame how your children are raised on anybody else. It's your responsibility. You brought them into this world, and your children are not a distraction from your responsibilities They are your responsibility. Are you training them up in the discipline, the instruction of the Lord? Now, if you're not doing that already, I know as I'm talking to this room that I'm talking to a team of people, team of men, team of fathers who get this and love this and are doing this so well. But you never know who's listening and you never know where people are at. And so if you aren't exactly sure if there's ways that you can be doing this better or learning in this, can I suggest one very practical way to start? Probably the most important thing you can do, dads, read the Bible with your kids. 
Read the Bible with your kids. Read the Bible with your kids often. And if you don't know how, we've got a little book in the library. Dimensions little. It's easy to read. And it's sitting beside the computer. And it's called Bible Reading with Your Kids. It's a guide for fathers designed to help you be able to do this. Read it and learn how to do that. And read the Bible with your kids often. I doubt there's more a more important thing that you could do. We got another great book beside there, Fatherhood, What It Is and What It's For by Tony Payne. Dads, learn how to be a dad. You train for sports. You train for your job. You train for all kinds of things. Why would you not train for one of the most important jobs that you actually have in your life? And and then maybe a third practical suggestion here is, is as you learn how to do this, here's an idea. Look around at men who are older than you who have been raising children well and learn from them. Take them out for coffee and just be like, hey, I want to learn from you, even from your mistakes. What did you do that worked well? What did you do that didn't work well? What are the things I should be doing at this stage in my, in my ch- children's life? I don't make any claim to be the world's best dad or anything, but anything good that I have done with my kids, I've learned from other men. And so dads, be a student of father. You're a student of whatever your favorite sport is. Be a student of something way more important, which is being a godly dad. Learn from others. This is so important. Now, what about the rest of us? I know that as some of you listen to these words this morning, uh, you may not be a dad, but you're realizing again what a gift God gave you in your father. Maybe he's not perfect. Maybe he's made some mistakes. Maybe he didn't do things as well as you would have hoped. But he's been a blessing to you. So honor him. Tell him that today. If he's with the Lord, praise God for the blessing of a godly father. But what if, what if that's not you? This is one of the really tough aspects of preaching a Father's Day sermon. What if you didn't have a good dad? What if you don't? What if your dad didn't even try? Passages like this Sermons like this can be really painful, can't they be? Or dad, maybe you realize that you didn't do well when you had children who were younger. And really, that's a whole other topic. It's not too late for you. But let's talk specifically about those of us who hear a message like this and and it, it, it hurts. Here's where we need to understand what fatherhood is all about. You know, like in Ephesians 5, where the Apostle Paul explains that God designed human marriage so that when Jesus came, we would already have a picture of what, of what Christ and the church is like. He did the same thing with fatherhood. There's that verse in, in Ephesians 1 that he talks to the father from whom every family on earth is named, from whom every fatherhood on earth is named. And the idea there is that human fatherhood isn't just a picture that God picked up Rather, God designed human fatherhood to give us a picture of what his father relationship with his people looks like. So here's what I'm saying. Human fatherhood was only ever designed to be a little arrow pointing up to the Lord. A little mirror pointing up to the father. That's all it, was, that's all it ever was. If you had a good dad... All you had was a pale reflection of the real thing. He's not the real thing. He's just a pale reflection of the real thing. And if you didn't have a good dad, you still have access to the real thing. Our Heavenly Father. 
our Heavenly Father, who loves us, who disciplines us, who cares for us. Here's a realization I had a few, a few years ago as I was wrestling with some of these questions. Do you realize that much of the New Testament was written to people who didn't have godly dads? Because they were all first-generation Christians. They'd all just come to faith, and Roman Greek dads in the first century could actually be pretty brutal. So you had a whole generation of Christians who were first-generation Christians and had no idea what it meant to have a, a godly dad. And so how, do the, how does the New Testament talk to them? What it does is it orients them time and time and time again to their heavenly Father. Think of how Romans 8 does that, which we read earlier. Think of how Ephesians does that. Go through Ephesians and highlight every time the word father or adoption is used. Think of Hebrews 12 talking about how God uses the hardship in our lives to discipline us because he's our loving Father. And that's what good dads do. We have a father, the real thing, which human fatherhood is only a reflection. And so what I've found, most of you know my story, I went through most of my life not knowing my earthly dad, and and it was hard, but what it also forced me to do is press in close to my heavenly father, and I don't want my kids to miss out on that opportunity. So I, I tell my kids all the time, I'm not your ultimate dad, I'm not God, I tell them that when they talk to me at the same time. I say, I I can't hear you all at the same time. God can. I can't. But beyond that, I'm just, I have a very limited role in your life for a very short period of time to help point you to your real father. And when I'm gone, I want you to be okay because you know who your real dad is. So press in close to him. And that's something every one of us can do today, regardless of what kind of relationship we had. So dads, that's your job is to point your kids to the Lord. And people You've got a father. So as you go through this upcoming week, don't forget who your father is. Here's just a way to to take this, to walk away from this sermon into this week is think about it this way, that the Christian life in many ways is about having a relationship with your father. I had someone email this morning, talk about, oh, it's so silly that, you know, Christians have to pray and read the Bible all the time. Don't you want to talk to your dad? That's, that's, That's just what it is. We talk to him, we hear from him. It's about a relationship with our father. So this week, here's how you can apply this message. If you aren't a dad, enjoy your relationship with your heavenly father who knows you, who loves you, who disciplines you, Hebrews 12, who is taking care of you, who's providing for you. And that's what we're going to sing in this last song about our faithful father. You have a faithful father. And if you doubt his love, look at the cross where he gave up his only begotten son that he might adopt you as his child. So we're going to take a moment of quiet and we're going to pray, flip that order around, and then we're going to sing and we're going to honor our Father. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you that I could give this message this morning. Thank you that you are our Father. Thank you for giving so many of us godly dads, for giving many of us the chance to be. Lord, thank you that we can be spiritual parents to those who were not our physical kids, just like the Apostle Paul was a father to many. Thank you that the chance to influence others is something that you give to all of us. But thank you, Lord, even deeper that you are our father The best dad is just a pale reflection. I pray you'd help each one of us, Lord, this morning to embrace your love. 
and to give you the glory that you deserve as our Father. Help us to walk with you this week in this light. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.